0: Hey, good morning. How are we doing? Good. Good. I see in the second service that nobody was fooled by the cooler temperatures this morning. We all I, I woke up at about 6:30 and saw 68 degrees on my weather app, and I began a long prayer vigil and trying to will in some fall temperatures myself. I don't know about you guys. Um but uh, if, you, if you got your listening guide, if you grabbed one on the way in, then you'll notice that on the back, it is completely blank. And there's a reason for that. That is because, quite frankly, I have wrestled and been wrestling with this passage that we're going to be in today for several weeks since I knew that I was going to preach on it. And to be honest, I've actually wrestled with um, this and four other passages in the book of Hebrews for much of my adult life. Um, I became a believer when I was five years old. I trusted in Christ um, for the forgiveness of my sins. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home. There were three things uh, that were certain in my life, death, taxes, and church attendance. So I knew, man, we were like opening up the doors. We were shutting down the doors. We would go take a quick break for lunch. And then we'd be back for Awana that night and then something on Wednesday. I mean, if the doors were open, we were there, right? Um, And so I never really knew particularly what it looked like to not follow Jesus. you know what I'm saying? Like some of you are in a similar boat where we've just kind of always just grown up knowing him. Um, And I didn't, I wasn't super excited about that story for for a lot of my growing up years. I wanted the story, uh, the kind of the Damascus Road experience where I was way, way over here, and then God found me, and now I'm way, way over here. And some of you for, for whom that is your story, you're like, listen, you do not want that story. I'm not interested in that story. You know what I'm talking about. But, but I thought I wanted that story. And the reason is I, I wanted proof. I wanted some additional evidence in my life that I knew, okay, this is what I would look like without Jesus. And now this is what I look like with Jesus. And I wanted for those two things to be radically different. And that's just not my testimony. Okay. And so, you know, if that, if your story is anything like mine, you know that a lot, that that the first time the rubber really hits the road for you, if you accepted Christ as a very, at a very young age is when either you, or a really close friend or family member of yours all of a sudden comes to you or you in your own own heart or mind say, I I just, I'm not really there anymore. I don't know why. I'm just, I don't buy it anymore. Um, And so for me, I had uh, one of my closest friends. In fact, two of my closest friends um, growing up uh, all through high school, accountability partners, man, we did everything together. Um, both of them, uh, shortly after we graduated from high school, uh, in, very, in different conversations, said, I just, it's not really me. That's not who I am anymore. Um, and so you know that the questions that you start asking of yourself, if this is your story or you know somebody that you've had this conversation with, you know that the questions that you start to ask are things like, how do I know if salvation really stuck for that person or for me? How do I know whether or not I ever was a believer in the first place? Can I lose my salvation? Uh, and these become some of the most captivating questions that you just obsess over. And I did. Like high school and college, for me was just pouring into this doctrine. and a lot of in the doctrine, that a lot of these questions sort of circle around is called eternal security or the assurance of our salvation. Um, there's uh, several names for it, but you guys kind of, you're familiar with that terminology, right? Um, and so all of the passages that kind of have to do with this became some of the clearest, like I memorized those verbatim. I knew them and, they, and, and some of the passages that... Um, are most clear in my memory are, are these. So you got Philippians 1, 6. I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You've got Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. At the moment you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's, uh, who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Or Romans 8, 38 and 39, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all the world is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Absolutely. But for every one of these, there is this, equal, this seemingly equal and opposite passage You know, so we've got these other ones that are terrifying, like Paul in 1 Timothy talks about people that have made shipwreck of their faith. Well, that doesn't sound like a good thing. Or you've got Peter, 2 Peter 2.20. He talks about somebody who has escaped the corruption of the world, only to become entangled in it again and overcome. And Peter actually says that that person is worse off now than he was in the beginning. Well, that's no good. Nobody's memorizing 2 Peter 2:20. That's not on anybody's, you know, cross-stitched pillow or that's not nothing, right? Or you've got James 2:17, faith without works is dead. dead. Oh, that's that's great. Man, that's wonderful. Uh, that'll preach. Um, and so I'm just like I, I just, this tension of like, what do I do with these? And then Hebrews is, uh, some, several passages in Hebrews are the ultimate counterweight. If you're familiar with them, they're called the warning passages of Hebrews. So if you remember all the way back to Pastor AK's uh, sermon, it was uh, in August, we were actually um, introducing Hebrews. We're all the way to chapter two. Who knows where we'll be next week? But... <laughs> Um, you know that the overall message of Hebrews is keep at it because Jesus is worth it. But there are five very strong, and they increase in their strength, messages or warnings about what happens if we don't keep at it. And they're very concerning. And, I, uh, and I'm just, I've been troubled about these passages for much of my life. Um, and so... Uh, when Curtis told me that I have the only two Sundays where we're talking about the warning passages in the, in the fall semester, I was like, okay, well, we gotta get ready. Um, so let's just dive in. Let's just dive in. Let's see what we've got. Hebrews 2, verses one through four. <clears throat> Therefore, we must pay much closer attention To what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. So let's just go kind of line by line and see what to make of this passage. It's very concerning. So let's start up in two, one. Therefore. Okay, stop. What do you mean therefore? Okay, so you, got, you English teachers know if you find a therefore, you need to figure out what it's there for. All the teachers in the room said thank you. And so we got to back up. And you guys did not get the passage uh, one five through fourteen in Hebrews one last week, but in that passage, the author of Hebrews explains to his audience that Jesus is much much greater than angels. Well, that's what a what a bizarre comparison, right? I mean, you're in, you're in two kind of camps on this, right? You're either thinking to yourself, well, yeah, duh, you know? I mean, like, obviously. Or you're thinking to yourself, what, why would we even, what do these two things even have to do with one another? I mean, they're both heavenly or something. What's, what's going on here? Okay, so let's figure out. Keep a finger in Hebrews and go over to Acts 7. Acts chapter 7 In verse 38, I'm just gonna be there really quickly. I'll start in 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. Now, what is important about Mount Sinai? What do the people of God get from God at Mount Sinai? The law. There you go, audience participation, I love it. They get the law. And what we figure out from this passage and several others in, throughout scripture is that the law was actually mediated to God's people from God by way of angels. Now, this is new information, but it kind of clarifies for us why Jesus is being compared to angels. Jesus is far greater. The angels mediated to God's people the old covenant. Now Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant. Now stop there for a second. If your view of angels is these little squishy, chubby cherubs that go on a Hallmark card or make for a great Christmas ornament, then stop, stop. That is not biblical view of angels. Angels, nine times out of ten, when an angel confronts somebody in scripture, that person falls down like he were a dead man, prostrates himself, and tries to worship the angel. Now, they're Jewish people, so they know only to worship God, so they must think that they're in the presence of a godlike being, and the angel goes, No, 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 stop that, no, 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 Worship him, not me. He sent me, okay? And now we're saying that Jesus is far greater than this creature that caused people to fall down, prostrate, and try to worship them. See, and I get it. We are in this very uh, Western, very like removed from a near Eastern ancient culture. We don't value the law like these people did. See, it's, it wouldn't be hard for me to tell us in this congregation, hey, Jesus is greater than the law. We would all go, of course he is. That's obvious. But this is earth shattering, it's groundbreaking for the, for the audience of Hebrews because the law, they loved the law. Even in this very passage, we say the, in Hebrews, we say it's reliable. Scripture calls it a guide, calls it trustworthy, calls it beautiful. They soak and meditate on it day and night. And the author of Hebrews says, no, 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 no. Even greater than the law, even greater than the mediators of the law is Jesus and the new covenant that he has enacted for us. Okay, so that's the the therefore. Okay, so therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, what does it mean to drift away? Um, I won't bore you with the Greek this time, but the word picture that is created here, there are several illustrations that kind of are supposed to draw us into this word, this drift away. One of them is like evaporation. Okay, so it's like smoke or water vapor. You know, you see it and then you don't really know the moment at which it disappears, but all of a sudden it just kind of dissipates, vanishes into thin air, right? Didn't explode, didn't collapse. There was nothing sudden or rapid about it. it just, it's just gone. Another word picture is that of kind of a leaking out kind of a seeping out, and it's not a negligence. It's like the container was bad, you know? So it's like when you go and you stab your straw into the Diet Coke at Chick-fil-A or the sweet tea at Cane's, and you don't realize that you poked the hole right through the styrofoam in the bottom, and you're like, you know, you're just driving. I can't wait for my sweet tea, and you pick it up, and you know, it's just all gone, right? You don't know where it went, but the container was bad, and it has seeped out. It's gone. But even more kind of central to this analogy, to this word picture, is a a nautical, uh, like a ship. And it's like a guy were to come and he were to lash his boat to the mooring, but he didn't really do it well. He wasn't really careful. He wasn't really diligent. He didn't check his knots. And he leaves it and he comes back in the morning And the ship has been carried away silently, quietly, while he wasn't looking, while he slept, vanished, never to be seen again. This is the picture of drifting away. And so the writer says that we need to be very careful lest we drift away. Now, the question is, what does it look like to drift away? Because I think this is most of our experience, I don't know very many people. I don't know anybody personally, actually, that thought that they were drifting away from the faith, and so they said, "I, th- I think I might be drifting away. I'm going to go away for a while. I'm going to take my Bible and a couple of commentaries with me. I'm going to eagerly, diligently search out the scriptures, and I'm going to see if I'm drifting, and I'm going to come back either." A, Uh, you know, just a hardcore believer sold out for Jesus or I'm gonna come back an atheist. I don't know anybody that did that. I know a lot of people. I know a lot more people than I would like to know that have just said, I just woke up one day and it was just gone. I don't know when I couldn't point to you a time, but I just don't believe anymore. And I'm sure that every single one of us in this room know somebody probably that is very close to you who has said that. And I hope that you are praying diligently for that person, but they have drifted away from the faith that they once held. Happens in a few ways. Could be the sort of just weathering, the merciless weathering of time. It could be somebody that's been a believer for years, years, maybe decades. And I don't know, somewhere along the way, maybe it was negligence, somewhere along the way, maybe there was some sort of catastrophic event in their lives, but more than likely, they just, they're not any, they're much farther from Jesus now than they were when they started. They look at the word and it feels dead to them. They've tried to pray and it just hits the ceiling and comes back. And they remember a time when they were much closer, but now they're not so. Could be that. It could be the deceitful familiarity with the truth. You, you guys know, I mean, I, have you done this before? When you sing a brand new worship song or you read a brand new passage of scripture and you go, oh, that's so good. It's just like in my gut, you know, you feel the spirit just like, welling up inside you to the truth of what you're hearing for the first time. And then there's a certain 1,000th time that we've sung, how great is our God, that it just doesn't have the same punch anymore. Or we can read John three sixteen, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we can go, well, yeah, sure he did. A deceitful, familiarity with the truth. Or it could just be the oppressive weight of busyness. And this is something that I think happens to a great many of us, where it wasn't that we just wanted to push God to the margins. It's just one thing after another came up, and we just really needed to be at this meeting. We really needed to take care of this thing. We really needed to you know, get our kids to these extracurriculars and all of of these things. And it just sort of, now we're at a point years down the road where we don't remember the last time we've opened the word. We don't remember the last time we've had any meaningful or intentional prayer. We don't remember the last time we went to church. Could be the oppressive weight of busyness that caused us to drift away. And so this is like a super bleak picture that gets painted. And I have to be honest. I'm not like, I'm not just overjoyed to bring to you chapter two, verses one through four, because it's hard. And some of us are in that boat. So what do we have to do in order to no longer drift away or to ensure that we don't drift away? Well, let's go back. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So if you remember, the writer of Hebrews is probably Jewish person. Don't know for sure. uh, But he is most certainly deeply immersed in the story of God's people. He is already, by this point, just in the first chapter alone, he is already quoted from three different books and six different psalms of the Old Testament. I mean, dude knows his scripture, right? And he knows the story. He knows that God is faithful and his people are not over and over and over again right we're just riding the roller coaster of the nation of israel through the vast majority of the pages of our bibles god says here's here's what i want for your good and man says nah no thank you i'll have this i'll have this evil thing over here please right and then there's discipline or there's consequences you know you've got story after story you get kicked out of the Garden of Eden, you get a massive flood of epic proportions. We know what those are like. You've got priests that are consumed by the fire of God coming off of the altar. You've got exile in Babylon. And over and over and over again, God restoring his people to himself, but not without consequences. And God even describes us In Psalm 95, he even says, they are just a people who go astray. They don't know my word. They don't know my law. They go astray. And so God says that when that happens, this is going to go badly for you. Let's go over to Deuteronomy 6. And I'm gonna read a large chunk of this. I'm starting, Deuteronomy 6, I'm starting in verse 4. Verse 4, excuse me, verse 4 and 5 are uh, called the Shema. We'll start with that. I'll come back to that in a second, and then we'll keep reading. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to to your children, And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full and take care, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of, of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God In your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. And what God is saying is that even for his people when they forget the law, that first two verses, the Shema, they were to say that morning, noon, and night, every day of their lives. They were to drink in and soak in the law. It was good for them. It was God's good intention to give them the law. We don't get that. The, 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 we're, we think of it as something broken and old, uh, but Christ comes and says, I want to fulfill it, not to eradicate it, right? But God says, if you don't follow the law, it's going to go badly for you. Not because he's a murderous tyrant, not because he hates you, not because he you know, wants to destroy you, but because he wants good for you. And when you do something that is contrary to that, you reap the very natural consequences of that. It's going to go badly. There will be discipline. There will be judgment. And this idea offends our modern Western sensibilities. We don't like this idea that there might be discipline and correction or judgment. But I would submit to you that there is a good sort of judgment. I remember times in my own life where I was an idiot and someone came to me and said, you're an idiot and here's what's gonna happen because you've been an idiot. There will be consequences and this is what they're gonna look like. And I thought two things. Number one, I knew that that person was right. I knew that person loved me and cared for me And I knew that I had that coming and it was good. It actually washed over me and restored me. And I wanted to do what was right, not what was evil. And so there's a good sort of judgment. And what the author of Hebrews essentially is saying is that Jesus is qualified to make that good judgment. Joshua Ryan Butler in his book, The Skeletons in God's Closet, says he is not only the judge, he has himself borne the judgment. Jesus has the authority to judge because God himself poured out the judgment that was due us onto the son. So I'm not gonna spoil the ending of Hebrews for you. I'm not gonna tell you why this is happening the way that it is. I'm sure I couldn't answer that from this stage to all of you at once, but we come to the next passage or to the next line, verse three. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Unfortunately, this is not like a sleight of hand rhetorical device. How shall we escape? The answer is we won't. We won't. And I want to leave something of a tension here. I, I be honest, if I, if I thought it would work, I would have begged Curtis to keep going in chapter two, to go all the way over to chapter 12 or 13, to try and resolve the tension, but I don't wanna do that. I do wanna say one thing very clearly. There are some options. There are several possibilities in your mind right now for what this, who this verse could be directed to. And I wanna establish that there is one group of people that it most certainly is not directed to, okay? If you were to go to our doctrinal statement, many of you don't even know we have one of those, but we do. On our website, you can go to the About and to our beliefs. And on one of those bullet points, you will find assurance of the believer. So, one thing that I know is that if you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, there is no such thing as you losing that great and precious gift that was one for you. No such thing. But there are a couple of possibilities and they are concerning. This might be directed to spirit-indwelt, blood-bought believers who are in some season of rebellion against God. And it might be that the result of that or the, the, the discipline, well, that the, the punishment for that is discipline. That rebellion is not going to end well for you if that is you. There will come some reckoning. And I just mean the consequences of your actions, right? Our sins find us out. And it's possible that this is a false disciple I suppose that it is possible that somebody has never truly trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And there's a far greater punishment for that. But if we obsess like I did for so many years over this question, can I lose my salvation? Can I lose my salvation? Can I lose my salvation? Yes, no, maybe, I don't know. We have Left, we have forgotten a foundational principle. We have actually undercut the very goodness of God. If you believe today that you can lose salvation, that you truly had, if you believe that the spirit, like Ephesians 1 says, that was in you, that that has a conditional guarantee, then I would say you believe in a God that can get tired of you, that can give up on you, that is done with you, that has run out of grace for you, and that is not the God of Scripture. No, the God of Scripture says that if you can look outside and the sun isn't where you expected it to be, and you can look out at the, in the night sky and the stars are not shining, then and only then would God abandon his promises to you. Spoiler alert, that is never gonna happen. So if you are stuck and fixated on this question, I would submit to you that you have denied in a very real sense That God is to be trusted. Come back to Hebrews. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will, it was declared at first. By the Lord. Let me tell you something. If you can leave here with one truth today, it is that salvation is God's idea, not yours and mine. Scripture is unanimously clear. You and I did not want good things for ourselves, did not want salvation for ourselves, did not want fellowship and intimacy with our creator and the very Jesus of chapter one, for whom all things are created, through whom all things are created, who is superior in every respect to priests, to angels, to the law. He emptied himself of all all of that and came for yours and my sake while we were enemies of God, while we hated him. That is what you need to leave with. That salvation is God's idea and that he can be trusted to bring it to pass in your life. So what do I do? What do I do now? to make sure that I don't drift away. What's my takeaway, Davis? Well, theres I, I don't need to reinvent the wheel. That would be really concerning for you if I reinvented the wheel of scripture. Please don't keep coming to church if you've got a preacher that reinvents the wheel of scripture. Soak in the word. It is the revelation of God, the story of God's salvation of his people, his great Love for us and how that finds its fulfillment in the cross. Well, but every time I go to it, you know, I I don't, I don't understand it. I don't, you know, it it doesn't seem like. Go again, go again, go again. Tell your concerns to people that you know are not in that same boat. Tell, go to somebody who cares for you and loves Jesus and loves you and say, man, I don't know. Every time I open this book, I just find myself frustrated. Let Let them speak truth over you when you can't for yourself. But pay close attention. Don't drift away because Jesus is manifestly supreme and good. Keep at it. Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for even the pieces that Concern me, that call me to action, that warn me of the dangers of drifting away. And yet, Father, even in the midst of that warning, you remind us that salvation is yours and that you have won us. God, I pray for anyone in this room that is struggling to believe that, I pray that that would fall afresh on them today. I pray that we would be renewed and transformed by the reading of your word. We thank you for it. We pray all these things in your son's name, amen. Hey, we close every one of our services with a time of prayer. So if those of our prayer and ministry team for the day, if you can come forward, I would particularly ask you if you find yourself in a place where it just feels like your heart is hard, you've got some rough edges that need to be smoothed out, uh, don't wait. Don't neglect that. I think we can feel that in ourselves. Come forward, ask for prayer. Let somebody encourage you Let somebody call you back to the truth of Christ's love and his redemption of of us, of you. So you come forward and let's enter into a time of prayer.